would you grab your Bible, or if you have a device that you're going to open, open up your Bible, 1 Corinthians 13 is what you want. 1 Corinthians 13. Once you get there, I'm going to ask those of you who are physically able to stand with me as we will read the chapter. I don't think we can read this too many times. Would you agree? So let's, let's stand to our feet. Once you've located it, stand up and... Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, let's read the chapter together once again. It's just so beautiful, and we just need to hear it. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. But do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child, When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. You know, of all the the beauties in life, I think children are uh, beautiful to watch, to see their childlike faith, to uh, see their trust in those who are in their lives is wonderful. And it's always a terrible thing when that gets taken away or robbed. But one thing that Paul does say here at the end of the chapter in verse 11 is that it's time to grow up. And there is a negative in children that we see. Very early on, they can be very what? Selfish. Uh, In fact, uh, we don't have to teach them to be selfish. They just naturally seem to come by it. It's one of the uh, uh, offshoots or consequences of the fall. The Adamic nature in us or the nature of Adam and Eve in us, specifically the nature of Adam, passed along and uh, we can see selfishness. In verse 11, you may want to just consider that when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 13, he is writing it as a corrective. You could, say, you could say this, that love is the ultimate corrective to everything that ails us in life. All the brokenness in our world, all the division in the church, every broken relationship, marriage, division in a family, hurts, wounds, you name it, can be healed by what this chapter says. This chapter is not hard to understand. Would you agree? It's just hard to apply. Amen? It's not difficult to understand what Paul is saying. The question is whether you and I are willing to do what the Bible is saying. And that's the rub for all the Christian life, is it not? That we can read the Word of God, we can can have understanding of the Word of God, but if we don't apply it, if we don't love like we're supposed to, then really we have failed. We have stayed in a childlike state, if you will. Childlike faith is important, but we have to move on from being selfish. You know, when I was considering the uh, true love in this series that we're doing together, as we've moved all the way through 1 Corinthians, and now we've landed in chapter 13, I couldn't help but thinking of love songs. There's a whole genre of love songs. All of you probably have your favorites, right? And since I'm a little bit older, I think of love songs from back in the day, 70s and 80s. And one love song I, think, I thought of was the Bee Gees 
How Deep Is Your Love? How many of you remember that song? came out in 1977 at the end of the year. It was number three, I think, in the United Kingdom. It topped the top 100 in the United States. And the Bee Gees uh, sang these words. This is kind of midway through the song. He says, How deep is your love? How deep is your love? I really mean to learn, because we're living in a world of fools, breaking us down when they all should let us be. We belong to you and me. He says, I believe in you. You know the door to my very soul. You're the light in my deepest, darkest hour. You're my savior when I fall. And you may not think I care for you when you know down inside that I really do. And it's me you need to show. And then they sing, how deep is your love? <laughs> how they got to that level in singing. I really need to know. Anyway, so it was a guy band, but they had high voices. Anyway, do you hear the question in there? The question is, how deep is your love? And then he says, I really need to learn. I want you to show me. And I think that that is what Paul is essentially saying. He's saying to the Corinthian church, you could have all these incredible spiritual gifts. You could do, do all this amazing thing, stuff in the name of Christ or religion. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. We all long for love. We all have our list of songs maybe that we enjoy. The kind of love we encounter in 1 Corinthians 13, I've told you, is true love. But the question I think we're all asking is, is this kind of love attainable? Because we live in a world where we get often disappointed. We can feel like we haven't been loved well, or we can even feel like our love has grown cold for others. Some of you may remember Whitney Houston with her amazing voice belting out a song originally written by Dolly Parton. And she sang, I will always love you. And no, Pastor Michael will not attempt <laughs> to hit those notes. <laughs> but do you remember her belting it out? Amazing voice. So beautifully, I will always love you. But do you know, that song was written by Dolly Parton originally, and the song, ironically enough, is about parting ways. It's about parting company with someone over years of relationship and telling them as you walk out the door, I will always love you. And some of us have gone through that as well, where something has broken up. Maybe we didn't want it. We still feel a love in our heart, but maybe we don't have the same opportunity that we had before, and we ask the question when Paul says love never fails, maybe some of you say, really? Because I've seen it fail over and over again. But what you've seen fail is not God's love. What you've seen fail is an attempt at love from a worldly perspective. And that's a little bit of what we're going to dig out as we talk about love. Now let me remind you of just a few foundational things. Number one, from the New King James Nelson Study Bible, they write, God's love is self-originating. God loves the world because of what and who he is. One common word for love in the Greek language was eros, which suggested physical sexual desire and not much else. Another word, philos, suggested the esteem and affection found in a casual friendship. Because neither of these words came close to describing the kind of love Paul wanted to communicate, he chose a relatively rare Greek word for his definitive passage on love. This word is agape or agape. It describes a love that is based on the deliberate choice of the one who loves rather than the worthiness of the one who is loved. This kind of love goes against natural human inclination. Close quote. Great commentary by David Garland. He says these words about agape or agape love. He says, love or agape always provides proof. Love puts itself on display. Romans 5, 8, God put his love on display at the cross. So much so that it would be necessary to translate agape, says Garland, as a demonstration of love. That is why this word is used to describe the love of God. It's the love that puts itself on display 
And the definitive display of that love was, of course, at the cross. Some of you may be here this morning, and maybe you would say honestly, if you did a love assessment, if you were to look at your relationships and even your relationship with God, maybe you would say, maybe I've forgotten how to, lo how to love. Maybe my love has grown cold. Can I learn to love again? And my answer is yes. Undoubtedly, yes. You can learn to love again. You can make a decision to love again because I told you that agape love is not so much a feeling. We all love the feelings of love, but you know, you all know that feelings ebb and flow, right? One day we feel something, the next day we, mo we, we may not. One moment we feel something, the next moment we may not feel those same feelings. But agape love or agape love is a decision that we make. And the good news for Christians is that we have God's help to make the decision. God has commanded us to love. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is like it. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's a command. But the good news for the Christian is that we have the Holy Spirit to help us live out love. God gives us the command, but he also gives us the power. So we pick it up in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13, as Paul writes, And if I have, 13-2, the gift of prophecy. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched between two chapters on spiritual gifts. And Paul will go back to three that he named earlier in chapter 12. If I have the gift of prophecy, another spiritual gift. If I know or understand all mysteries, musterion is the Greek word there, and all knowledge... The word of knowledge was a gift we saw in chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. If I have all faith, that was another gift in chapter 12, so as to remove mountains, mountain-moving faith, but do not have agape, do not have love. What's your Bible say? I am nothing. I could have these gifts, and certainly we'd have to argue that in the Corinthian church, the gifts seemed to abound. They did not lack in spiritual gifts, as we saw in chapter 1. The issue was not the gifts. The issue was the motivation behind the display of gifts. What, why is it that you engage that gift at that moment? And what is your motivation for the gift? We learned a big principle, that is, that gifts are to be edifying to the body of Christ. And so Paul will pause from his premise on agape for a moment in verses 2 and 3 to give us another side to take a look at this. We said agape is action, but what if action is devoid of love? We've all seen it before. What if action is loveless? If the target is action or spiritual gifts in service of others motivated or driven or empowered by love, if this is true love, what happens if someone does the action but it doesn't have love as its foundation. What happens if someone does it for show with 20 strings attached? Have you ever come to the realization that somebody did something, but it wasn't out of a pure motive, it was to get something out of you? Or you realize when you read the fine print that they didn't do this out of pure motivation, they did this because they wanted to catch you in something else or get you to do something else. How many of you have signed up for something, you know, somebody uh, offers a free trip or a free cruise and then you realize what you got yourself into? Two hours of having to watch something about their, they're going to sell you this or that. There is no such thing as a free lunch, right? It seems in the world that there's always a string or multiple strings attached but it should not be so in the body of christ when peter was restored by jesus on the seashore in john 21 three times jesus said to peter peter do you love me peter said lord you know that i love you you know that i love you and jesus said then feed my sheep then tend my lambs hear the words jesus first asked do you love me You've been telling me you love me. Okay, you say you love me. Now do this. I want love to be the foundation and action to follow the love. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then do this and do it out of love. Constantly, Jesus had to address the disciples on their hardened hearts. 
and they're jockeying for position and their lack of love. I mentioned to you that when you look at the verses, you'll notice that Paul says in verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of angels. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy. Verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. Commentators have pointed out that we need to note that Paul is being autobiographical. That is, Paul is applying the arguments to himself. In chapter 11, verse 1, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. And it is certainly true that a lot of us have seen bad examples of love, in quotes. We've watched people walk out the door. Some of us deal with abandonment issues. Some of us have lived in broken relationships. And now we're trying to understand what love really looks like. And we've heard the world's message, and we've seen it even in the church fail us. What do we do now? Well, Paul says, look, if I, he applies it to himself, and so can I ask you and me to start with us? We can look at everybody else and question their motives. Paul says, if I speak with the gift of tongues, and I mentioned last week that Paul had that gift. As we see in chapter 14, he spoke in tongues more than them all. But Paul says, if it's without love, if it's not compelled by love, it's nothing. Write this down for your notes. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, For Christ's love compels us, controls us, New American Standard, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. We love because he what? He first loved us. That is our motivation. Our Lord, the one that we claim to follow, first loved us, not because we were worthy of his love. He loved us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of God. That's when he loved you. And I took you to a few passages in the Gospels last time where Jesus says, if you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Everybody does that. I want you to be different. I want you to win the world by being different. This is a personal love. It's compelled by love. And it is Paul saying, if I did this, if I did that, but didn't have love, I'd be nothing. Notice some of the language in verses 2 and 3. Notice the emphasis on the word all. If I, if I know all mysteries, the deep things, the Corinthians were in love with this idea of secret knowledge and mysteries. If I had, verse 2, all knowledge, if I knew everything, had all the knowledge that there is to know, if I had all faith, if I had such extreme gifts to know all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith, if I had mountain-moving faith but did not have love, I would be what? Paul says, I would be bankrupt. I would be nothing. I would have no substance. Imagine for a moment having these gifts so imbued upon you that you knew everything, every deep spiritual truth. You you knew all of the stuff that has to do with word of wisdom and word of knowledge. Imagine that you could walk around like Jesus and know people's thoughts and people's motives You could know what they were doing and why they were doing it. You could look inside their soul. Imagine that kind of ability. Imagine if you had the faith so that you could say in a moment, move mountain, and it obeyed you. Paul says if you could do that, but you don't have love, you're nothing. Nothing. Some of us are like flabbergasted when we think about what Paul is actually saying, but that's what Paul has done. He's taken it to the most extreme, hyper-spiritual state. Let's say you had these gifts in their fullest abundance, which almost puts you on the level of divinity, but you didn't have love, you'd be nothing. One writer says, spiritual gifts minus love equals zero. You're nothing. And that is something that confronts us as we look at this chapter for Paul one is something or nothing listen only in relation to God how one defines their existence when it's all said and done whether you were something or nothing has to do with your obedience to God and his word
Because ultimately, God is going to measure the substance of your life. Not by your accomplishments, not by your trophies, not by the praise of men. He's going to measure your life by a different measurement. Everybody getting that? God is going to measure what you did and how you lived by what he told you to do, despite the messages that you're hearing from the world. Despite when your buddies say, oh, just throw in the towel. Why do you continue to do this? Why do you continue to do that? Why do you continue to fight? God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to have a life that's substantive, a life of honor, a life of love. All substance to life, what brings wholeness is love. David Watson writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, your heart, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully around your hobbies, your little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it in a safe, in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can perfectly be safe from all the dangers of love is hell, close quote. That is a staggering quote. But that's the reality of love. Love is willing to risk. Love puts itself out there, but when you're willing to put your heart out there, you risk it being stepped on. And some of you have been stepped on so many times, you've retreated, you've pulled your heart back. You've said, I'm not going there again. And that's understandable. It's very human. But Paul says in verse 3, if I give all my possessions, let's say that I was a very charitable, benevolent person, verse 3. If I gave not some, but what? All my possessions to feed the poor. Uh, One writer says charity is all the rage, but what about loveless charity? What if someone is only interested in giving another some money or food for a photo op or for a tax write-off? What if someone was very benevolent and had a foundation and feeds the poor, but when you really pull the, the, the veil back, they do it to get the photo opportunity or to get the tax write-off? How would you feel if you're on the receiving end of that and you found out that that's why they gave? 2 Corinthians 9-7 says, God loves what? A cheerful giver. God wants love to come from the heart. Not out of some mechanical duty, but because we love God. Love-desiring humans might say to the pragmatist who says, well, at least you got the stuff. You know what? Keep it. If you don't love me, I'd rather be starving. I'd rather be homeless. I'd rather be broke. If you don't love me, the transaction means nothing. What about someone who does a radical sacrifice like what if someone, what if the rich young ruler sold everything he had and followed Jesus? See, when Jesus confronts the rich young ruler, he knows what his God is. He doesn't tell every Christian, aren't you glad? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. All of us are like, that's not sweeping application, is it, Pastor Michael? No, I don't think so. I think what, what the Lord did in the rich young ruler's case is attacked his God. His God was money or mammon. And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you want me to be your first love, you got to put away the love of money, which is the root of all sorts of evil. Not money, but the love of money. Love elevated on the plane of God, equal with God or above God. That's your issue. What if someone did that? What if someone, verse 3, gave their body, surrendered their body to be burned? The ultimate act, especially in the early centuries of the church, of martyrdom. People burned at the stake for their beliefs. Or, as we've seen, what if someone in a religion blows themselves up or flies into a building and becomes a martyr for a religious cause? But if they don't have love, if I surrendered my body to the flame, let's say I did it for uh, the Christian religion, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
It, every sacrifice must be driven by love, not to score points. Clement reports that believers had given themselves over to the capacity as a ransom for others. Many in the early church gave themselves over to slavery and used money to provide others with food. Literally, this reads, if I parcel out my property for food to feed the poor, if I give everything, but it's not done for love's sake, I'm nothing. What if I died in the den of lions? What if I was consumed in the fiery furnace? If I didn't have love, it would be nothing. Verse 3, it says, it profits me nothing. So if you kind of just summarize the verses, you could see, I'm just a lot of noise. End of verse 2, if I don't have love, I am nothing. End of verse 3, if I do these extreme uh, works of benevolence and sacrifice but do not have love, end of verse 3, what your Bible say? It profits me nothing, 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 nothing. However, if I do it in love, it means everything. Amen? Let's flip it around for a second. If I were to do these things for the cause of love, now let's take the positive. Let's say that I did give something away. Uh, I was the widow who gave everything she had, the two mites. And I did it for the love of God. Well, then Jesus would say she outgave everybody that day at the temple. Let's say that I would not recant my faith. And I was, someone said, you need to recant that you believe in Jesus or you die. And let's say that I died and I did it for the motive of love and honor of my Savior, then it's everything. Do you see how heaven measures these things? If my motive was the honor and love of God, it would profit me everything. In fact, Jesus said, I would say, well done, good and faithful servant. I hear what you're saying. Sometimes how I feel. <laughs> a man stopped at a flower shop to order some flowers to be wired to his mother who lived 200 miles away. As he got out of his car, he noticed a young girl sitting on the curb sobbing. He asked her what was wrong and she replied, I wanted to buy a red rose for my mother, but I only have 75 cents and the rose costs $2. The man smiled and said, come on in with me, I'll buy, a, I'll buy you a rose. He bought the little girl her rose and ordered his own mother's flowers, and they were leaving. He offered the little girl a ride home, and she said, yes, please, you can take me to my mother. She directed him to a cemetery where she placed the single red rose on a freshly dug grave. The man returned to the flower shop, canceled the wire order, picked up a bouquet, and drove the 200 miles to go tell his mom that he loves her. You see, tongues without love produces nothing. Gifts of prophecy, knowledge, and faith without love means I am nothing. Give everything, pay the ultimate sacrifice, it profits me nothing. I gain nothing of value. But if I do these things in love, it means everything. Now, as I have studied the chapter and thought about our movement through it, I've decided that it's worth us slowing down a little bit so I'm only going to take us to verse 4 because I'm going to show you the two pillars upon which love is built. And let me remind you that love, agape love here, is not so much defined as it is described. If you're taking notes, love here is not so much defined as it is described since it is an action. You could even say love here will be personified, described and personified. You could say this is how love acts. Paul do, does um, not use adjectives to describe love. He uses verbs. In fact, 15 verbs in three verses, which means love is dynamic and active. It is not something static. We don't have to guess when love is present. We can see it. Paul is not talking about some inner feeling or emotion. He is talking about love defined by action. This is what love does and what love does not do. Let's start in verse 4. Love is what? It's patient. Love is kind. How many of you have prayed for patience before? Raise up your hand. How many of you have decided you are never going to do that again? 
Love, love is patient. Now, you can pray for others. Pray that the Lord will make others patient, right? I'm not sure if that's a blessing or a penalty, but anyway. Love is patient. Love puts itself on display. What Paul chooses to cover is directly connected, please hear this, to where the Corinthians are lacking. The proof of love is undeniably in the actions of a person. As Paul celebrates what love does, he is at the same time, ironically, rebuking the Corinthians for what they don't do. Everybody with me? So as we have heard this read at weddings and maybe even at funerals or special occasions, Paul is celebrating a hymn of love, but at the same time he is correcting people who don't love the way that they're supposed to love. And that's why this chapter, maybe you felt a little bit of conviction. Because that's what Paul is doing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's celebrating what love should be, and then he's saying, now look in the mirror and see how you're doing If you were to put your name here, how would you do? Love is patient. What if I put my name here? Michael is patient. Michael is kind. You could see how this would walk itself out. Love is patient. Let's start there. If if you were to think about the uh, ways that you might look at this, you might say, if you were to describe how somebody loves somebody, you might say, So-and-so so loves so-and-so because, and then you would normally fill in the gap. You won't believe that he buys her flowers every week, or he does this, or he opens the car door, or she does this for him. And we usually would tie it to an action. That's why in verse 4 and what follows, we have this is what love is, and this is what love is not. This is from the book, The Love Dare. Love is built on two pillars that best define what it is. Those pillars are patience and kindness. All other characteristics of love are extensions of these two attributes. Love inspires you to become a patient person. When you choose to be patient, you respond in a positive way to a negative situation. You are slow to anger. You choose to have a long fuse instead of a quick temper. Rather than being restless and demanding, love helps you settle down and begin extending mercy to those around you. No one likes to be around impatient people. Impatience overreacts in angry, foolish, regrettable ways. But the irony of anger toward a wrong is that it spawns new wrongs of its own. Anger almost never makes things better. In fact, it usually generates additional problems. It will trample on long-term relationships while reacting to short-term mishaps. He goes on. Patience stops problems in their tracks. Patience takes a deep, a needed deep breath. Patience is a choice. Remember, it's an expression of love, which is a decision. To control your emotions rather than allowing your emotions to control you. It shows discretion instead of returning evil for evil. Patience brings internal calm to an external storm. If you were to take off its mask, you'd see that anger is often an emotional reaction flowing out of our ignorance, foolishness, and selfishness. Patience, however, makes us wise. It says, help me understand, instead of, how dare you? It It doesn't rush, patience doesn't rush to judgment, but puts our feelings on pause so that we can fully listen to what the other person is saying. Proverbs 14, 29, and 30 says, People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. New Living Translation. A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like a cancer in the bones. One writer says, Patience is where love meets wisdom. In Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Love practices patience. Love is long-suffering. Literally, the word is long-tempered. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. The word for patience is common in the New Testament and is used almost exclusively not for being patient with circumstances. Everybody ready? but for being patient with people. 
If it weren't for people, everything would be all right. Ever said that before? Right? But that is the issue, is it not? That's where we lack patience. Someone in a line, someone in their car, a spouse that you have to wait for in the morning. Come on already, what's it going to take to get out of here? Right? Have you ever noticed when you're driving that if you are not late to somewhere, you're, you decided to kind of mellow it out, downshift and cruise, somebody inevitably is on your bumper, impatient. Right? You're like, what's their problem? And then have you ever turned it around and found that you're the person who's late? And it's their problem, the one that's cruising. It's always the other person's problem. I want them to be patient with me, but I'm not sure I want to be patient with them. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, long-suffering is love enduring. Love performs the positive act of waiting. Love is patient. It reflects a willingness to live the situation out to the full in the belief that something hidden there will manifest itself to us. Maybe there's a reason that God has asked you to wait. Maybe God's put you in situations where you have to be patient because he knows that that's your problem. Ever thought of it that way? I had a brother in the Lord one time tell me that he heard a message from a pastor about divine delays. And he said he's heard stories where if someone would have left the house earlier, got on the plane or whatever, something bad would have happened. And because they had to wait or they had to exercise patience, God spared them or gave them a different opportunity. It's not an excuse but it's a way to maybe reorient our thinking. It's hard to be patient with people. It's hard to be patient with someone who exhausts us. The King James translates it, love suffereth long. When you think about it, these are the two pillars that is patience and kindness that God has had in his dealings with us. God is patient and God is kind. When we wrap this up, I'm going to have you put the name of Jesus where love is, and you're going to see that Jesus or God fits these descriptions perfectly. Has God been patient with you? Can I get a witness? Anybody? Come on. How patient has he been with you? Incredibly patient. I heard eternally. <laughs> Romans 2.4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Romans 2, 4, not knowing that is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that any perish, but all come to repentance. I know we're, repentance, I know we're all looking at the world right now and saying, Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Come, Lord. The country's falling apart. Come, Lord. But some of you know if the Lord would have come in His second coming five years ago, you might not be in the kingdom. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, fill in the blank. God is patient and He is kind. One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was Edwin M. Stanton. He called Lincoln a low, cunning clown and the original gorilla. He said it was ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla when they could uh, find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln never responded to the slander. But when as president he needed a secretary of war, he chose Stanton. When his incredulous friends asked why, Lincoln replied, because he is the best man for the job. Years later, as the slain president's body lay in state, Stanton looked into the coffin and said through tears in his eyes, there lies the greatest ruler of men that the world has ever seen. His animosity was finally broken by Lincoln's long-suffering. His non-retaliatory spirit, patient love won out. That's from John MacArthur. Thus, Paul's description of love begins with a twofold description of God, who through Jesus Christ has shown himself forbearing and kind to us when we didn't deserve it. The obvious implication, says Gordon Fee, of this is how we need to love people the way God has loved us. Would you all flip over to Ephesians 5? Just 
a little bit to your right. Pass up Galatians, go to Ephesians 5. Look at verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Ephesians 5, 1. Imitate God as beloved children since we're in his family. And what should we do? We should, Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love. We should live in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We are to love, we are to imitate the love of God in our lives. Go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll look at one more. Love is patient and love is kind. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6, Paul says, In purity and knowledge, in patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, and in the power of God. Paul says, this is how I accomplished the ministry towards Gentiles. The Lord made me to love Gentiles. Paul is a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was taught in the high-level rabbinic schools. He got all the, the teaching. Much of it was a miss about how to think about Gentiles and so forth. And Paul says, God made me a minister, a, a missionary to the Gentiles. Here's my point. God may call upon you to love those that you never imagined you could love. Has he changed your heart? Are you starting to love maybe in a different way? Have you found a new definition of love? I hope you have. Because you find it in the face of Jesus. Love is patient. Second foundation upon uh, all of this being built is love is kind. The present tense of the verbs mean that we need to keep being patient and keep being kind. These are habitual practices. We can't say, well, I was patient with you two days ago, but now I'm done, <laughs> right? No, it's a habitual action. Or as Dr. Barnhouse put it, kindness is love's touch. The word for kind is benevolent. To be kind is to be useful, serving. It's to be gracious. It's to act in goodwill. Kindness is generous. Kindness is provision. Just as patience is willing to take so much, kindness is willing to give so much. Think about it. Patience will take much. Kindness will give much. Continuing to read from the love dare, kindness is love in action. Patience avoids a problem. Kindness creates a blessing. One is preventative, patience, the other is proactive kindness. These two sides of love are the cornerstones on which many of the other attributes of love are built. Love makes you kind, and kindness makes you likable. When you're kind, people want to be around you. They see you as being good to them and good for them. Kindness takes initiative. It's helpful. It's willing. It's gentle. It's pictured well in the story of the Good Samaritan. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, Proverbs 3.3, and you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and of man. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, uh, 4 and 5. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Jesus tells the story. He's been asked by a lawyer, an expert in the law, about the greatest commandments. Jesus tells the story. A couple religious leaders see a man taken by thieves, beat up, left for dead. The religious experts in the law that know that the law is summarized in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself go to the other side of the street and will not bind his wounds and help him. But they're experts in the law. But they walk by and say, nope, no thank you, not going to touch that guy, not going there. And then a Samaritan came by. Jesus is such a great storyteller. Because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews and vice versa. And the Samaritan comes by and he sees the man 
there beaten and bloodied and he tends to his wounds and he puts them on his animal and he takes them to an inn and he says, look, take care of him and I'll cover the bill and if there's anything more that needs to happen here, I'll pay for it. Which one of these men showed compassion to the man taken among thieves? You can see the religious leaders of the day. I suppose the one Samaritan who showed compassion. And Jesus said, then you go and do the same. Any more questions? Any more questions? It's hard when you ask a question and then you get corrected by the master of love who essentially says, that's you. You walk by people who are different from you. You mock people who are of a different background or race or come from a different place. And you have created a cold, pitiless religion, which means nothing. You are nothing, Jesus might say to the religious leaders. Oh, you have your phylacteries. You have the scriptures all over your body. And you tithe, mint and cumin. And you fast twice a week. But you are a hypocrite. Hard stuff. But from the Lord of love who knew their hearts, and he knew that the love of God was not in them. They were religious, but empty. William Barclay says, it's not too much to say that everything that's been done for the aged, sick, the weak in body and in mind, the animal, the child, the woman, has been done under the inspiration of Christianity, close quote. Heard a story about a small orphan boy. He lived with his grandmother, One night their house caught fire. The grandmother, trying to rescue the little boy who was asleep upstairs, perished in the smoke and the flames. A crowd gathered around the burning house. The boy's cries for help were heard above the crackling of the blaze. No one seemed to know what to do, for the front of the house was a mass in flames. Suddenly a stranger rushed from the crowd. He circled to the back where he spotted an iron pipe that reached to the upstairs window. He disappeared for a moment, then reappeared with the boy in his arms. Amid the cheers of the crowd, he climbed down the hot pipe as the boy hung around his neck. Weeks later, a public hearing was held in the town to determine whose custody the boy would be placed in. Each person waiting, uh, wanting the boy, was allowed to speak briefly. The first man said, I have a big farm. Everybody needs the outdoors. Second man told of the advantages he could provide. I'm a teacher. I have a large library. He would get a good education with me. Others spoke. Finally, the richest man in the community said, I'm wealthy. I could give the boy everything mentioned tonight, farm, education, and much, much more, including money and travel. I'd like him in my home. The chairman asked, anyone else like to say a word? From the back seat rose a stranger who had slipped in unnoticed. As he walked toward the front, deep suffering showed in his face. Reaching the front of the room, he stood directly in front of the little boy. Slowly, the stranger removed his hands from his pockets. A gasp went up from the crowd. The little boy, whose eyes had been focused on the floor until now, looked up. The man's hands were terribly scarred. Suddenly, the boy emitted a cry of recognition. Here is the man who had saved his life. His hands were scarred from climbing up and down the hot pipe. With a leap, the boy threw himself around the stranger's neck and held on for dear dear life. The farmer arose and left, the teacher too, the rich man, and everyone else departed, leaving the boy and his rescuer, who had won the boy without a word. Those scarred and marred hands spoke more effectively than any other words. We all realize that it's the scarred hands of Jesus that say all we need to know. That God so loved you and me that he gave his son. God is kind. He's been patient with us. He's been kind with us. And he's shown his love for us, put it on display at the cross. If you end up in darkness on that day, if you end up separated from God, you will have to climb over his son. You will have to climb over the sacrifice of the cross. You will have to reject love to find yourself in hell. But there is a hell. And it is a place for the loveless. It is a place for people who say, No, I don't want him in my life. I don't want his love and I don't want his lordship. 
But anyone who has ever seen the cross for what it is and understood their creator for who he is will say, oh Lord, I will run, jump around your neck, and I'm not letting go. Please never let go of me. Amen. Father, we thank you for this love chapter. We are moving slowly, but we need to because love, your love is amazing. You have been so patient and so kind with us. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of my faults, I could never stand before you. But you love me to the end. You love me all the way to the cross. As Paul put it, Jesus loved me and delivered himself up for me. What amazing love is this? It's love that's won over skeptics and atheists. It's a love that's won over the hardest of hearts. It's a love that needs to win us again and again. But here, as we pray at the end of a message on 1 Corinthians 13, it's a love that's available. Especially if you're here and you've never known that love, you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you never saw the cross for what it was. God in human flesh taking your punishment. Taking the insults, carrying the weight, taking the wrath for you. This is the ultimate expression of love. And if you haven't known that love or you need to find your way back to that love, something this simple but so profound, don't let it pass you by. Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. Please come into my life. Thank you for loving me so deeply and richly. I put my trust in you as my Lord, my Savior, my King, and my God. Pray it if it's you. I turn away from my sin, I turn away from running from you, and I give my life to you. I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. I believe you died on that cross for me and resurrected from the dead, and I'm going to put my faith and trust in you and you alone for my salvation. Please save me, restore me, and use me to spread your gospel to others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Father, for those who have opened their hearts, maybe those who are just doing a little business with you about renewing love in their life, love for you, love for others, those who are desiring to return to their first love, which I think is something we need to do all the time. Help us, Lord. Teach us how to love. Teach us what true love really looks like. And then help us to do it. Give us the strength when we feel like we have nothing left to give, when we feel like patience is the furthest thing, kindness is the last thing, give us your kindness and your patience. Give us the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Give us your smile. Give us your love, your endurance. Help us never forget how far you were willing to go and wait and be benevolent to us so that we can pass it along to others. And Lord, forgive us, forgive me for the many times I have failed to love. Thank you that you're so gracious and patient with me. May your love permeate this congregation and may it change this community and this world. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, amen.